All right, so Exodus. Uh, it's hard to overstate or properly encapsulate how influential the story of Exodus was in all aspects of ancient Israel's culture and then the Judeo-Christian tradition since, ever since its existence, since Exodus has happened. It's a story that's alluded to or referenced to or echoed throughout the rest of uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is a massively significant defining story for Israel's identity. Exodus is very, very, very much a story about humanity and, and divinity colliding about a God who, who is very active and responsive in the world, a God who keeps their promises, and a God who saves through recreating. Um, as important as this story was in the ancient Near East, it's, it is still a masterpiece that still has something to say to us today. So we're going to spend the next eight weeks or so uh, delving into this strange and beautiful and terrifying and inspiring book. Um, now is the case, as it is the case with pretty much any book of scripture, but especially with ancient writing, which is what Exodus is, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about it. We could spend time talking about the historical context, the uh, anthropology, the archaeology, the linguistics, uh, the historicity, which is a fancy word that basically just means studying how well does this text fit with what we know, or as best we think of what actually happened in history. Uh, based on uh, other writings that corroborate it or archaeological evidence that we can find. Uh, we could talk about all of that for hours and hours and hours. And all of those things are important. And a lot of those things are even interesting, at least to me. Uh, but we don't, have, we don't have hours and hours and hours together to talk about these things. Uh, we'll touch on some of them, some of the things that I mentioned above, but we're going to primarily focus on the story itself and what messages it conveys. We don't even have time to really talk about <laughs> each and everything in the story itself. Uh, there are two parts to this book of Exodus. There's the narrative portion, which is the actual story, and then there's a good chunk of, of laws and instructions. And in this series, we're only going to be focusing on the narrative portion. And even then, we're not going to be able to hit every part of this narrative. There's just so much, especially as we have to go through layers of interpretation to understand what ancient people were trying to say. Uh, but we, each week, I'm going to teach you a portion of the story, and then we're going to talk specifically about one part of that portion and try to extrapolate what it might mean for us today. Whenever you read ancient literature, you have to first try to understand it through ancient eyes. If you want to take it seriously and respect it, then you have to try to understand what, how its original audience would have understood it. And then you try to extrapolate that out to today. So that's going to be our task each week of this series. I'm sure most, uh, if not all of you, are familiar with the basic gist of the story of Exodus because um, most of you are millennials, so you probably saw Prince of Egypt when you were a kid. And if not, you, uh, like me, somehow were subject subjected yeah, subjected to watch that terrible Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner version, uh, which is like... I don't know, when did that come out? It's awful, it's scary. It's like, it looks like Planet of the Apes, but it's Exodus, because that's basically what it is. Um, but so uh, the basic gist is this. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. God talks to Moses through a burning bush. We'll get to that. And tells him to go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, to, to let um, Moses lead the people of Israel out of Egypt into freedom. 
So Moses goes and does what he's told, and Pharaoh says no, and then there's a bunch of plagues that are really like gross and nasty and scary, and eventually Pharaoh's like, okay, get out of here, you can leave. And so the people leave, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, and then he sends his army to bring them back. And then the people are being chased by the army, and they find themselves caught between the army and the Red Sea, and then all of a sudden God parts the Red Sea so that the people of Israel can walk through it. And then as the army is coming behind them through the Red Sea, God allows it to collapse back in on itself, and the army's drowned trying to cross, thereby decimating Egypt and assuring Israel of its freedom. That's the basic gist. But there's a whole lot more to this story. And actually, like, the story doesn't end there. There's, like, the whole next four books of the Bible are about everything that happens after. Um, (laughs) Well, I guess all of the rest of the Bible is everything that happens after that point. But uh, there's still more to the story of Israel wandering through the desert. There's a lot more going on. Even in just the Exodus story, there's a lot more nuance and a lot more details to get into. Uh, And I... I'm generally terrified (laughs) to teach this book. Uh, I kind of pushed back against teaching it last year and instead decided to teach Job, which not sure that that was any easier, but I had a lot of fun teaching Job. So this year I I am excited about doing this. I think it's going to be a fun series to get into. And if you really don't like ancient writing or for some reason you're in a church and you just don't like the Old Testament, which actually I understand, or if you just don't like history or any of this stuff, I promise to still try to make this fun and interesting for you. Okay? I'll do my best. Okay, so we're going to get started. We are going to be looking at just chapters one and two of Exodus. And uh, actually, we won't even get all the way through chapter two. I had planned to do that, and I ran out of time. Well, I didn't run out of time. I did it all and then had to cut out like half of this talk. So uh, you're welcome. Uh, Don't worry too much because these are short chapters, but there is a lot to talk about. Uh, It's just a few scenes that help us set the stage for what's going to really go down in the story later on. Um, so we're going to be reading, like I said, a little bit, uh, a little chunks at a time, and uh, we'll stop along the way when there's something interesting to point out. Um, so if for some reason, not if for some reason, if you have your Bible here tonight and you want to turn to Exodus chapter 1, uh, we'll get started. It's really easy. You don't have to go very far. It goes Genesis, Exodus. Boom. You're right there. You're ready to go. Uh, so this is Exodus starting in verse 1, chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, which is a really cool name, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, which is not as cool as Zebulun, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Okay, so if you are just starting to read the story and have no prior knowledge of anything that's going on, this is a really weird way to start a story. He names like 15 people, well, I guess 13 people, uh, as though you should know who any of these people are, and mentions that one of them is already in Egypt, like you should know that. Because this is tying this book in, is picking up exactly where Genesis left off. The very end of Genesis is the story about Joseph. It's a story about this guy named Jacob, who is later named Israel. He has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and long story short, his youngest son, Joseph, eventually winds up in Egypt as second in command underneath the Pharaoh. There's a whole lot of other stuff that happens. You should read it. It's a crazy story. Uh, there's famine in the land, and so Joseph, again, a bunch of, I'm skipping over tons of stuff. Joseph basically is able to bring his entire family into Egypt so that they don't starve to death. That's why all of Israel is in Egypt at this point. Okay? He's just saying, this, the author here is saying, Remember that story that ended a little bit ago? 
We're picking up right where it left off. So now we're going to start back up in verse 6. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. Yikes. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, now again, the author here is being really clever and, and purposefully is kind of alluding back to the story of Genesis. Uh, he says the Israelites were ex- exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly. In the story of the, Adam, <laughs> of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, one of the first things God tells humans is to be fruitful and multiply. And throughout Genesis, whenever they kind of stop doing that or try to not do that, God kind of gets angry with them. So this is like a big deal for humanity in the beginning of the world, to be fruitful and multiply. And we see here that Israel has been doing just that. Additionally, in Genesis, there's this guy named Abraham who's like the godfather of Israel. And God tells him, even though he is married to a woman and they have no kids and they're old enough to die, he promises Abraham that his descendants are going to be massive and be a huge nation. And so right in the beginning of the story, what we see is this author alluding back to Genesis saying, everything is going the way that it should. The people are holding up their end of the deal. They're being fruitful and multiplying. And God is holding up his promise, which is Israel will grow to become a great nation. Okay? Picking back up in verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So, Pharaoh gets angry, and well, Pharaoh gets scared about the Israelites doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, which is grow. And he fears that they might rise up against Egypt, so he decides to do something about it. This sets the stage for what is the primary showdown of this story. God versus Pharaoh. And who are the Israelites going to serve? God wants the people of Israel to prosper and grow. Pharaoh wants them to shrink back down to be manageable. And Pharaoh tries to make this happen in three different ways. First, uh, starting in verse 11. uh, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Anytime in ancient writing you see something repeated, that's for emphasis. That's to say, like, this was really, really, really bad. They worked them ruthlessly. They worked them ruthlessly. They tried to make their lives so bitter and so uncomfortable that they wouldn't keep having babies. So that's Pharaoh's first idea, enslave the people, to work them so hard that their lives are so miserable that they'll just kind of give up or they'll die. Somehow that backfires on him, and the people of Israel just have more babies. So next, Pharaoh tries this in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that a baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why haven't you, why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, (laughs) Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. (laughs) 
<laughs> Basically, Hebrew women are so strong and so intense, like we don't even get there in time. The baby's already out, running around, building bricks for you by the time that we get there. Which basically is like a very backhanded way of saying like Egyptian women are really soft, Hebrew women are really strong. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And they had kids and so Israel became even more numerous. Okay, there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, Names. Anytime you see people named in ancient literature, that's extremely important. Anytime you see a name, it's a big deal. Everyone's name means something. And it usually gives you a hint about what, what kind of person this is or what kind of role they're going to play in, in the story. Um, we don't have time, unfortunately, to get into all the names of these characters that we find in just these first two chapters. Uh, I'm hoping to uh, put out a video, kind of like I did last series, kind of delving into the meaning behind all these names. Um, but just know that anytime someone is named, it's a big deal. Conversely, I think that's the right word. I might be using that wrong. The absence of names are also a big deal. So here in this story, this little snippet, Pharaoh, the powerful leader of Egypt, is not named. But then we have two slave women, two midwives, who are named. They're important enough to remember their names. Pharaoh's not important enough for you to even know who he is. This is meant to be insulting to Pharaoh. Uh, and so basically, Pharaoh tells the midwives, if you see it's a boy, kill it. Again, the midwives are like, we're not going to do that. Also, our women are so much tougher than your women that I don't even know why they call us midwives because we don't have a job because, again, the babies are just out running around by the time we get there. So Pharaoh's plans are thwarted by these two women, these two slave women. And again, this, <laughs> this only makes Israel increase all the more. So now Pharaoh relats, resorts to his last and idea, which is in verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Drown every male, let the girls live. This is important, not just because of how abhorrent it is, but it's a detail that we need to remember. This foreshadows exactly what is going to happen to many of Egypt's sons as they drown trying to cross the Red Sea. What, what is being set up here is, is the idea of what justice was in the ancient Near East, which actually was progressive for the time, which is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Like you can retaliate against someone only up until as much as they did to you. This was to stop escalation. And so this is setting the stage for why it's okay uh, that tons of Egyptians were drowned because they slaughtered tons of Hebrew boys in the sea. Okay, so that's the end of chapter one. See, they're not that long. Uh, We have Pharaoh trying to thwart Israel and thereby thwart God. Let's pick up now in chapter two. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, that seems weird, we're going to come back to that. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Okay, so um, I actually really, really, really love this little (laughs) vignette that we just saw. Uh, There's so much to this that we miss. 
first, we're told that a Levite man marries a Levite woman, and they get pregnant. Why does that matter? Why are we told that they're Levites? Uh, Levi is the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's the tribe that this hasn't happened yet, but later on, this tribe will be responsible for all the priests of Israel. Uh, you can't be a priest if you're not a Levite, except for some exceptions. But for the most part, you can't be a priest unless you're a Levite. Levites have a special connection to God. So what's being signaled to the original audience here is this is a full-blooded Levite that's about to be born. This is someone who will have a very special connection to God. But, uh (laughs) uh-oh, there's a small little problem. This is a baby boy. And as we just saw, Pharaoh's killing all the boys. Uh, So this mom hides him for three months after seeing that he is a fine child. I don't know what she was expecting. Like, if it wasn't a fine child, does that mean she would have done something different? Uh, when I first read that, I laughed out loud because it's like, that's just a weird thing to say about your own kid. Of course you're going to think they're, they're beautiful. But that word translated as fine is the exact same word that is translated as good in the creation story. After God creates things, every single time he looks at them and calls them good. This author is cleverly, again, alluding back to that story of creation in Genesis to signal to the audience that this boy is going to be special and that he will have something to do with creation, with beginning something new. This idea is taken a step further by the next little bit that we read. Uh, After the mom can't hide him any longer, she she takes a basket and, and makes it waterproof and puts Moses in the basket and puts him in the very water that Pharaoh ordered him to be drowned in. Now, what I think is super cool about this, I mean... Hang on, don't get ahead of me. It's not super cool that you have to like put your kid in the water. Uh, what's cool about this story is that the Hebrew word here for basket is actually the exact same word that's used for, to describe the ark in the story about Noah in Genesis. So the same word for ark is the same word. The word for ark is the same word for basket. So the thing that saves humanity and all the animals during the flood in Genesis uh, it's, is what the author, again, is alluding to. The original audience would have caught this allusion back to the uh, Genesis story. Just like Noah was protected in order to uh, start again, to start a new beginning, Moses is being protected here so that he can start something new. It's heartbreaking to think about the scene of a mother giving up her son when you think about it on a really literal level, which we are meant to do. But it's also pretty cool to think what's being symbolized here. And what how much of the previous story of Genesis is being re-encapsulated here in Exodus. Okay, so after the mom places the baby into the basket, into the water, we're told that his sister stood watch to see what's going to happen next. So picking back up, this is chapter 2, verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. Uh, She opened it and saw the baby, He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother, which was also her mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying... I drew him out of the water. Now, there are some really big issues with this explanation of Moses' name that I find really interesting. You might not. 
Moses is actually an Egyptian name. It's not a Jewish name. It's not a Hebrew name, which again, if you were trying to hide a Hebrew baby, you would not name them a Hebrew name. Uh, there's a whole lot there that I'm hoping to get into uh, at some point in, in that video that I talked about when we talk about names a bit later on. But um, there's some weird things going on here. But the point here is that these, these women, again, these women, Moses' mother, his sister, and then Pharaoh's daughter, all are act, uh, acting cleverly to outdo Pharaoh and save Moses. So Pharaoh's, uh, Moses' sister watches him float down the river to Pharaoh's daughter. And then when Pharaoh's daughter opens it up and sees <laughs> Moses' uh, sister, is like, hey, I just happen to know a, a, a Hebrew woman that uh, could nurse that baby for you. Do you want me to go get her and, and you know, let her wean the baby and then we'll bring it back to you? And so the <laughs> Pharaoh's daughter had to have known what was going on here. Like, what are the chances that this girl just shows up right when I find this thing and that she knows someone who can nurse this baby? And she's like, yeah, let's do that. I'll give you money and then I'll raise him. I'll protect him. He'll be good to go. All under the radar. So um, that's kind of where we're going to stop tonight. There are two more really short but important scenes that finish out chapter two that are all about Moses. Uh, but we're going to stop here for time. Uh, so to recap, the people of Israel are doing what they're supposed to do. They're listening to God by being faithful and multiplying. Uh, the, the Pharaoh gets really paranoid and tries to stop them from growing uh, through enslavement, through getting uh, the midwives to murder all the baby boys, and then finally just outright genocide of all the baby boys. His first two attempts backfire and result in Israel growing even faster. And his last attempt, we assume, was successful for, for many children. But Pharaoh failed to murder the one child that would later bring Pharaoh's ultimate fears to fruition. He failed to get the one kid that is going to do the thing that he fears most, which is why he's trying to kill all the babies. In fact, it's his own daughter working in concert with other slave women who brings the very person that will upend Egypt into Pharaoh's home, where he grows up as part of Pharaoh's family, safe and sound. So we have Pharaoh versus God. And so far, Pharaoh is looking really weak. Uh, he's looking monstrous, but weak. And so that's where we're going to pause in this story. Um, and for just a couple of minutes for the rest of our time, I want us to reflect on something that stood out to me in, in just these first little stories that are setting the stage. Uh, what I want us to notice is how in these first two chapters, God acts to save his people through incredibly ordinary and downright normal ways. The book of Exodus is full of, of, later on, we're gonna get to it, full of these insane, supernatural, miraculous things that are happening. But here in the beginning, many, many children, including and especially Moses, are saved through very unsupernatural actions of a handful of women who decided to do the right thing to protect a weak and vulnerable babies. This is hardly the epic, uh, glorious birth story of so many other ancient writings. Here we have slave women who are the least likely heroes of ancient writing being the heroes, outsmarting the Pharaoh, saving the day through ordinary, unsupernatural means of simply choosing to do the right thing. 
Later in the story, there are sticks that turn into snakes when you throw them on the ground and then turn back into sticks when you pick them back up. There are rivers turning to blood. There are plagues falling from the sky. Uh, there is uh, famine. There is uh, f- frogs and, and um, flies all over the place. Uh, we, we have an angel that goes around killing certain people. There's a sea parting to allow people to safely cross. There's huge pillars of smoke and fire leading people around in the desert. There's bread that just shows up in the desert every day to feed people. There's these crazy supernatural miracles that God, through which God acts to save his people in the same story. But here at the start, the thing that makes all those other things possible is just a handful of clever and faithful women acting in, in very unsupernatural ways that save God's people. And I think this points to the larger truth that God acts just as powerfully and effectively through our ordinary actions as he does through supernatural miracles. God acts just as powerfully and effectively through our very ordinary actions as he does through supernatural miracles. Let that sink in for a moment. I don't know if I'm the only one that, that feels something about that. It reframes things a bit, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but there are many times in my life when I, I really pray for the miracle. Uh, there are so many times when I wish I could witness something that is undeniably supernatural. I plead with God to step in and, and act in huge supernatural ways. Not floods or plagues or carnage, but, but you know what I'm saying. When really, my decision to simply choose to do what is right in very ordinary ways could be the quote-unquote miracle that changes someone else's life. How does that change the way that you look at your life? How does that change the way that you approach, how you approach the way that you live and the choices you make on, on a daily basis? To me, it reinforces the idea that everything matters. Not just the big loud, showy, huge, profound moments of life, good and bad, but the small, seemingly insignificant choices that, that we make on a daily basis to do what's right. All of it matters. God is in both. God uses both the big things and the insignificant little things to change the world, to alter realities, to protect his children, to start something new. So when are you going to start changing the world? We're going to pick back up in the story next week, and hopefully, if I do my job right, we'll start talking about that burning bush, which should be a really good time. We pray with me. God, thank you for um, these mysterious and powerful uh, old stories that help us see more of who you are. Help us understand how um, people thousands of years ago came to know who you are. God, thank you that you don't disdain the insignificant. 
God, thank you that you are just as active and present in these simple, small, everyday choices we make to do what's right. You are just as active in those things to change the world for the best as you are in the huge miracles that blow our minds. God, I pray that that would strike each one of us and that we would take seriously the choices that we're faced with every day because they could be that miracle that changes someone else's life. We love you, God. Amen.